0: Thank you so much, uh, Leah and Christina. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, 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 love you guys. I love all you guys. It's so good. So good. Um, what a wonderful day it is. And uh, as you know, um, our, just to re-tee up again, our overarching theme this year in chapel um, is abundant living. It's abundant life from John 10.10. 10. Um, and one of the sub-themes of that that we've been walking out and unpacking this fall is that, that theme of identity. And as, we've, undone, as we've, we've unpacked just the biblical rich imagery of identity in September and October, talking about identity and culture here, now in this new month, we're turning a corner and talking about identity and sexuality. But um, part, of, part of that as well, of this, this idea of abundant living, um, where we're also weaving in these themes of pro-life and having a full perspective of pro-life, of really from womb to the tomb. And that's not just as followers of Christ, we're not only pro-life, we're pro-abundant life. And so today, um, we are going to have an opportunity to hear about um, uh, the pro-life perspective of, of, of how do we respond, how do we react to um, abortion, what does pro-life, pro-choice look like, and um, actually be able to witness today in chapel to get a perspective of even what God sees and, and, and what is, dark, is in darkness as light to Him, and actually get to see a live ultrasound today as a part of today's presentation. But our speaker for today and for tomorrow. Let me tell you a little bit about her, and then invite her up as we get as we as we uh, get started this morning. So, Kim Katola is an award-winning broadcaster and writer. Um, she was inducted into the Minnesota Broadcasting Hall of Fame in 2013 for her work, um, and her book "Cradle uh, uh, Cradle My Heart: Finding God's Love After Abortion" is an Amazon number-one bestseller. And she was a finalist for the Evangelical Christian Press Association's Book of the Year in 2013 and had a foreword by Ruth Graham. She also produced and hosted a pro-life radio features from 2012 to 2018. She earned her bachelor's in ministry from here, from from Northwestern in 2008, and served as an adjunct faculty uh, in the media ministries here as well. Kim currently lives as uh, in Atlanta or in uh, in Fayetteville, Georgia, where she serves as the lead coordinator of abortion uh, uh, for uh, for at an abortion recovery support, uh, and uh, it's a minister of the Fayette Pregnancy Resource Center in Fayetteville, Georgia. So would you please give a very warm Northwestern welcome to Kim Katola? She takes the stage, and would you join me in praying for her and for ourselves? thank you father in heaven we are so grateful uh, that you are in this place that you are in our midst that you are with us thank you for your presence and lord uh, awaken us to you um, and, and as we continue in worship as we hear from kim uh, work afresh uh, in her by your holy spirit that she be a pure channel of your grace to flow through and lord that our eyes would be opened our hearts would be receptive to receive your truth towards greater Christ-likeness and transformation we love you and we praise you and thank you for loving us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Justin. Before we get started, I want to introduce to you a couple of assistants who are going to be part of the live ultrasound presentation. So, um, would you please welcome Amanda Sorensen, who is the nurse manager at New Life Family Services? Come on out, Amanda. And our ultrasound model, Anna. Come on over here, Anna. By a show of hands, how many people believe that there are three human beings on the stage right now? How many of you believe that there are four human beings on the stage right now? Okay, You're all dismissed. (laughs) This is what we want you to see, full humanity of children before their birth. But how many of you believe that there might be more than four? Ah. Any takers for five? How about six? All right, if you raised your hand, how do you think there are six of us up here? What did he say? Well, Amanda's pregnant with triplets as well. So thank you, ladies. Seriously, I have never had a more (laughs) striking introduction, because, you know, as um, Justin mentioned, um, we're going to see something today. Is there anybody here who's never seen an ultrasound image? You've never seen one at all. Like on Facebook, oh, this is my birth announcement, right? We've all seen those, haven't we? Yeah. And how many of us here have seen a live ultrasound already though? Wow. Okay. So like um, on the aisle, where did you have the opportunity to see a live ultrasound on the aisle? Your sister. Okay. A family member. Right. Okay. So for me, because um, I'm quite a bit older than you guys, (laughs) this is like revolutionary. Your generation... Well, and I guess, you know, my generation too, because I did see ultrasounds when my children were born, but this is like the first time in human history that we could see what before only God could see, life before birth, life in the womb. And it's really an amazing miracle. And I I think that it's part of God's providence because we need so much to be able to see and believe and grasp the full humanity of children before their birth. So this is what we're going to talk about, and I've titled my talk, Pro-Life or Pro-Choice, How Will You Decide? I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, because I know in certain circles to be pro-life. I have a friend who happens to be in a homosexual lifestyle right now. I've known him for a really long time. I've loved him for a really long time. He recently asked me what as a Christian I think about homosexuality so praise God I gave him the gospel because he asked me and he's considering it right now but a few years ago he told me Kim I'm pro-life because of your work and um, he said which was an amazing thing to me because he's not a follower of Christ and he's really living in darkness and I you know He said, but I can't ever tell anybody in my circle that. That would be social suicide, as a gay man, to come out as pro-life. Like, wow, really? (laughs) You know, woe to you who call evil good and good evil, but that's where we are. That for some people, that label is a slur. You're pro-life, you know, keep your laws off my bodies and all the political slogans that go with it, right? And so I've titled this Pro-Life or Pro-Choice because... I'm going to assume that you as Christian students here at UNW, um, and who could, you know, answer correctly how many humans are on the stage, (laughs) with my tricks even, um, I'm going to assume you're pro-life, but I don't know that to be the case, and so I want to be able to present to you the evidence of the full humanity of children before their birth and some of the ways that I hope to do that are through sharing my experiences and stories but also through presenting it at the evidence of the case for life and so as we think about the issue you know who is having abortions uh, there's a stereotype that it's mostly poor women that it's mostly teenagers that it's mostly I don't know what we think but the reality is that um, most women who have abortions are in the launch phase of life, meaning they're either in college or just out of college. Um, most are in their 20s, a few uh, stretch into their 30s. Um, by ethnicity, the majority are white, although it's about 40%. There's an overrepresentation of in the black community because blacks make up only 13% of the U.S. population, yet they have 28% of the abortions. It's interesting to note many people believe they're being targeted by Planned Parenthood and the other abortion businesses in the, in our country. 25% Hispanic and so on. Most are Christian. Uh, most will say that they are Christian. Um, and I guess, you know, being Christian isn't a... Uh, doesn't make us immune to addiction, right? Or sin. Um, most people who have abortions have a knowledge of the Christian faith, and I don't know if they are actually spirit-led, but they'll report that they're Christian. 76% are low income, and I think that's really interesting because, you know, you think, well, women need abortion to maintain their economic prosperity or to have an opportunity to advance in life, but um, how many of you right now, if you were to report your income independent of your parents, would fall in a low-income group? right? We're in the launch phase. (laughs) We're all low income. I once, literally the only time I pawned anything, I was in college and I pawned a birthstone ring that had been a gift to me for my birthday. I was low income. I mean, I wasn't in generational poverty, right? I was low income because that's where you are when you're in the launch phase of life. Um, 85% unmarried, but I want you to also consider the fact that 99% had consensual relations that led to that pregnancy. So the idea that women need abortion because men are, no, 1% of the abortions that happen are due to rape or incest. And we'll talk about that and the remedies and the justice needed for the victims of those crimes because those most certainly are most heinous crimes and we need to offer women all the support that we can after a circumstance like that but I don't know many other instances of setting a national policy based on one percent of the experience of people subject to that policy so and as I think about These statistics, you know, I could bring them to life for you with stories of women represented by each of these statistics. Um, But maybe the most striking thing that I could do is tell you that I am the poster child for who has an abortion. Because when I had an abortion, I was 23 years old. I am white. Uh, I was low income. (laughs) I had just gotten a job, my first job in radio. I was going to be the evening host at KS 95. And at 23 years old, I really thought I had it made, right? I had taken myself to Brown Institute at the time. It's, I don't think it's now even closed. They used to have a lot of ads for radio and television training. It was a vocational program. And um, I put myself through that, and I had a year in the field in St. Cloud, and now I had my dream job at KS95. And I think I got pregnant the day I started there because I was three months along And had my abortion at 12 weeks and uh, three months into that job. uh, We were in a relationship, Uh, one of the statistics I don't have displayed for you is that most relationships will not survive an abortion Um, and those that do will feel the reverberations throughout that relationship. Uh, We did did not survive that abortion. Abortion left me with a broken heart, with a broken spirit, broken relationships, uh, and a shattered self-image and a wounded idea of myself as a person of character. Yet some people would have you believe that that whole thing empowered me because I got to stay in that job. I launched, right? Some people would say that I needed that abortion to gain equality with the men that I'd be competing with in the workplace. Some people would even say limiting my access to that abortion would have amounted to our government going to war with me. The war on women, right, is a political slogan that has been in use for a long time. I'm sure you've heard it. Anybody here who hasn't heard about the Republican War on Women? Yeah, well, I mean, this isn't political. Uh, on my part, but that's that's an idea that's in the air, that we're all breathing in, that there are groups of people who are at war on women because they don't want women to be able to have access to abortion. And according to an article in May, in the Washington Post and the Fact Checker, they, they took a look at um, Leanna Wen, who was the uh, president of Planned Parenthood at the time, earlier this year, she's a doctor, and She was outspoken about a few things and they asked her, you know, she said thousands of women will die She said this repeatedly if abortion is outlawed thousands of women will die. It's going to be dangerous They'll go to back alleys and so on thousands of women will die She said it three or four times Washington Post rated that a whopper four Pinocchios a lie false <laughs> misinformation fake news the reality is the year before um, abortion was made legal. There were 24 deaths due to illegal abortions. Those who went to the Supreme Court to lobby for it said that you know there had been 10,000 or more, but and this was in the era before antibiotics, and so there's no war on women. Um, And I hope you don't ever repeat that and make yourself so foolish as to believe it and promote that idea. I want you to instead consider that we are, in fact, in a war on our children. Here in Minnesota, the abortion statistics through 2014 showed that if we were to treat the children lost to abortion As casualties of war, it would take more than three Fort Snelling cemeteries to hold them. Fort Snelling is the resting place. This is a picture of uh, one section of the the cemetery. It's the resting place for over 200,000 of our brave military and their families, but in Minnesota, From 1973 to 2014, there were over 618,814 children who were killed at the permission of our federal government. The number in 2017 is 10,740 innocent lives, which is a tiny 1.2% of all abortions in the U.S. that year. And yes, of course, we wouldn't need as much land, to bury them in those tiny caskets. So, even if you disagree that legal abortion rises to the level of a war on children, I want to challenge you today to take your stand as to whether you personally are pro-life or pro-choice. And I want you to be able to defend that stand if you are pro-life. My arguments are based on The Case for Life, written by Scott Klusendorf. I studied with him how to present The Case for Life in 2015, as well as a book on my recovery after abortion, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. And um, The Case for Life can be made very simply in one minute. And we make The Case for Life from science and philosophy and moral reasoning, and all of that is in harmony with the scriptures. And so here it is. Here's the one-minute case for life. We're going to unpack this a little bit more tomorrow, but this is what you need to know, and I'll go into a little more detail today, too. The case for life is this. The science of embryology teaches us that from conception forward, the embryo is a distinct living and whole human being. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. And there's no morally significant difference between the embryo you once were and the young adult you are today that would be a good reason for killing you then, but not now. Differences of size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying you could be killed then, but not now. And from moral reasoning, the case for life is a very simple and elegant syllogism which says it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being and elective abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being, therefore abortion is morally wrong. If you want to get into the scriptures, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want you to be able to talk about this with anyone, not just fellow Christians, and how often have you tried to have a conversation about this or another contentious issue, and someone says, well that works for you, you're a Christian, I don't believe the Bible, right? I don't want you to be shut down before you even open your mouth. So just know that this is a, um, a world view. I just want, don't want to blast through that. It is a worldview issue. And I'm, it's not that I'm against female opportunity. I mean, I had a 35 year plus career in radio in the Twin Cities. And um, I would not deny any woman the opportunity in the workplace that feminism may or may not have won for us. But feminism is antithetical, as a worldview, is antithetical to a biblical worldview. And hopefully you're learning about that in some of your classes, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there. Uh, but the idea that women need to destroy our children to secure a good future for ourselves is not only unbiblical, but it's, um, it's foolishness. How can we survive if we destroy our next generation, right? So, the case for life from science is simply that life begins at conception. Uh, Over 20 embryology textbooks agree that this is so. And when we think about it, I think one of the most striking ways that we can uh, offer up evidence of this is with the presentation of a live ultrasound. So, we're going to take, we're going to switch the screen now and uh, turn over the narration to Anna. Uh, excuse me, Hannah, who's going to be performing the ultrasound on Anna. Hannah, go ahead, please. I mean, (laughs) yeah, Hannah. (laughs) Amanda, sorry. Amanda, go ahead, please. Hi there.
2: (laughs) Are you guys able to see the image up up on the screen? Yes. Okay. All righty. So this is Anna's baby in here. Um, If we all moving around already. Um, This baby is already about 14 weeks along. Kind of what you're looking at here, this big black circle is the gestational sac and that's where the baby's living. And this is the baby's head right here. Baby is looking right at us and there are some eye sockets right here and right here. (laughs) And if you look really closely right here, you can see a flash of light and that's the baby's heart beating right now. Over on the side, you'll see an arm over here with a hand. I'm going to try to get a better view here. At this point, baby's moving around, but Anna can't feel anything at this point. And the baby has been able to swallow and mimic breathing movements for a few weeks already. If we move down below, we can see um, legs down here and a little side profile now over here. I'm going to change my view. This is the spinal cord. And again, that heart beating. And I'm going to try to measure the heartbeat if we can, because I think you'll be shocked at how fast it's actually beating. 153 beats per minute. The normal range is 120 to 180 at this point. So it's kind of crazy that all of this is happening. At our centers, we like to make sure that the baby is implanted in the uterus. And um, we make sure that the baby has a heartbeat, and we estimate the gestational age. If you look here, baby is opening and closing its mouth. (laughs) And those are the swallowing movements that we were just talking about. Very cool. It almost looks like there's a hand over here, so maybe it's sucking its thumb. Baby at this point is about four and a half inches long from crown to rump. (laughs) Kicking all over. (laughs) Oh, and now I'm going to curl up on the bottom. (laughs) I tell you, I have the best job ever. I get to do this every day. (laughs) Down here are some feet. (laughs) And in the next few weeks, um, Anna will be able to find out the gender of her baby, um, if she chooses to do so. (laughs) Um, Typically around 20 weeks is when they can find out via ultrasound. Of course, the gender is determined um, upon conception, but we can tell by ultrasound around 20 weeks. Again, that heartbeat right over here beating so fast. Ultrasound is also a great um, bonding experience for mom and dad or family members or friends, whoever comes with to the ultrasound, um, because you're able to see your baby, um, see the heartbeat and things like the mouth that we were just able to see, Um, even though Anna can't feel any of this that's going on inside her. Baby's looking right at us now. (laughs) So we've got some arms, legs, legs, an arm, this is the belly here, heart again, head over here. And at the time of your ultrasound, they, we would be measuring um, from the top of the baby's head to the bottom of its rump, it's called a crown rump length at this point, and that's how, far, how we find out how far along the baby is and an estimated due date. So um, based on our measurements that we had today, Anna's estimated due date is somewhere around um, May 12th of next year. (laughs) Due date? Did
1: you say due date May 12th, Amanda? Yeah, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. You guys remember that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I knew you when. Yeah.
2: And, I mean, it's kind of crazy that, I mean, you all saw Anna out there. She doesn't really look pregnant at this point, but all of this is happening inside of her. I think baby's got hiccups right now. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay, Amanda, I'm going to go ahead and take it back if I can. Yeah, of course, thank you. Wow, how about a, how about a hand? I mean, yeah, like, or would we like to just suspend classes and watch the baby the rest of the day? Because why is it so, why were we laughing? Why is it so delightful? Because it's a baby, right? And so the case from philosophy simply says, look, what gives human life value? There are a lot of people who would say, that's fine. That's, that's, a, that's a human form, a life form, but it's not a person. It doesn't need legal protection. It has no standing. I don't need to concern myself with it. The state doesn't have any interest in it. All of these attitudes that would dehumanize this baby that we just saw, right? Well, the case from philosophy simply says, all human life has equal human value. And human rights flow from our shared human nature. So either we're all equally valuable at every stage of life or there's no such thing as human, equal human rights. There's no such thing as equal humanity at all. And I'm telling you, that argument is a slam dunk with anybody who is interested in social justice. And I've had people say to me, you know, they start from arguing women's rights, women's equality, and once you can prove to them the full humanity from science of the child, you know, then you simply say, well, it's fine, I guess you're just not in favor of equal human rights for all human beings. And they'll either get mad or start crying or, you know, their head might explode, but there's no answer. There's no real answer to that. So this is, that's the case from philosophy. And you know, there are a lot of um, complicated arguments. We can, you, you know, I urge you to read the case for life from Scott Klusendorf, because it's really exhaustive and it will really arm you, but basically that's it. And again, I've given you the case from uh, morality, uh, the syllogism, that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, which is what abortion does, therefore abortion is wrong. You know, when you, when you get into cases like uh, an ectopic pregnancy, for example, that could really threaten the mother's life, the fetus is implanted outside of the u- woman's uterus, and so it might be attached to another vital organ. What happens in that case is that the doctor ha- may have to prevar- perform a life-saving procedure for the mother. Any reputable doctor will also try to save that baby. If that's not possible, that's not an elective abortion. That's an unfortunate effect of a life saving treatment for the mother from an ethical and moral standpoint. And so every good obstetrician knows that every pregnancy involves two patients. Obstetricians may not offer treatments to mothers which enda- endanger their children. That's another very compelling argument from science and from ethics. So, and you know, and the question then is, what has God got to do with it? The case from Christian theology is that God forbids abortion, and most often the objection that I hear is that the Bible is silent on abortion, and so, you know, it's a matter of conscience. And the the example I like to use with young people is simply this. So your parents hand you the keys, and they say, we're going to Chicago this weekend, you're in charge, we'll see you Monday morning. And as soon as they leave, you call your friends, and here comes the keg and the red cups, and party on, and a few things get out of hand to where you can't clean it all up by the time mom and dad get back Monday, and they are really, you know, <laughs> not in the dark any longer about what you did. And they say to you, what were you thinking? And you say, you didn't say not to get a keg in red cups. Is their silence a good argument from you? Or mom and dad, are your parents going to accept that? No, why? Because you know your parents and you understand the rules and the context for your relationship with your parents. And the same is true of the so-called silence on abortion in the scriptures. We know that we're made in the image of God and we know that God forbids the shedding of innocent blood. That's the case for life from the Bible. Now I'm going to show you, we have just a minute remaining, um, what abortion does to the bodies of the children who undergo it. I won't make you look at it, so this is your opportunity to look away if you don't wish to see this image. But I think it's very important that I show it because you may never have had the opportunity to see this. Please, if you don't wish to see it, now would be the time to look away, and I'll leave the image up for about 20 seconds. As you're looking at it, I'd like to observe the silence that naturally fell in this space. Someone has said that if we were to give each child lost to abortion a moment of silence, it would take more than 100 years to honor the victims in the United States alone. This child was about eight weeks' gestation. And this was the result of a DNC, a suction abortion. All right, you may look back, the image is no longer there. In closing, I just want to say social justice begins in the womb, we're now finding out the impact of what happens in utero sets the course for life, not just at birth, but in utero from the very beginning. Gaber Mate, is anybody familiar with him, working on um, trauma and other um, psychology uh, cutting-edge topics, has said even a, a, the vulnerability to become um, subject to you know, being a criminal starts in the womb. We are fully human from conception forward, and I praise God for the redemption that I have found through the gospel of Christ and through the shed blood that has made me free and unashamed so that I can tell you for his glory that he redeems our worst mistakes for his greatest purposes. I hope that what you've seen today has touched your heart to take abortion off the table for you and to maybe make you more vocal to stand up for those who can't speak for themselves, the children before they are born. Who are so devalued in our world today. Thank you. Just join me in a brief moment of prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for my healing. I know, Lord, that someone may be affected by abortion in this room, and I proclaim to each one your forgiveness, your love, your mercy, and your good, good plan to make everything beautiful in your time. Thank you, Jesus, that you've done it for me, and please do it for each one here. In your holy name we pray. Thank you.